tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. As we're now well into the month of Halloween, I know many of you might be looking to expand your audio horror universe. For that, there are some other podcasts I want to bring to your attention so you can sample other dark delights to satisfy your not-so-sweet tooth. The first is the well-established audio horror podcast, The Grey Rooms. I've mentioned this show before, and if you haven't already, you should jump into this horror anthology of stories set within a single audio drama narrative. It features many familiar voices and some wonderfully dark writing. The next show is called Mailtopia, a horror and dark fiction podcast featuring interconnected series and stories set in the ever-expanding literary world of Mailtopia. This one is for those of you who fancy deep, immersive literary stories with hints of science fiction and dark horror. Well worth a listen. And then we have a disturbing podcast, appropriately called Disturbed. This show also features many familiar voices you'll recognize as they recount true horror stories to chill your October nights. Unsettling, unexplained, unsolved, disturbed. The True Horror Podcast. Links to all three podcasts are in the show notes. So there, three shows to keep you horrified this month and beyond. And speaking of October horrors, I want to mention, or remind you, that The Haunting of Bly Manor has been released on Netflix. Created by friend of the show Mike Flanagan and featuring a writing team which includes our very own C.K. Walker, this is a follow-up series to The Haunting of Hill House, and it has been getting some wildly positive reviews. So dive into Bly Manor and binge yourself some nightmares along the way. Oh, but, but, but wait, don't go listening to and watching those other shows quite yet. We've got our own terrifying tales for you now, so you'd best brace yourself. Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale we find ourselves on one end of a telephone call as we join a dispatcher on the job. A call's coming in from a lady, and according to her, there are bad things going down. But in this tale, shared with us by author Sebastian LaCroix, we discover how dangerous it can be when wires get crossed. Performing this tale are Alexis Bristow and Nicole Doolin. So pick up the phone and listen closely. Pay attention to what's being described. 
and make sure you're not on a 911 call from another dimension. The call began like any other. 911, what's your emergency? Hello? 911? This is Therese. Something's up. What is your emergency, ma'am? I came home from work today exhausted and took a quick nap. When I woke up, I checked the front door and it's locked. Is the lock stuck? It looks like the door is locked from the outside. It is here that I admit I screwed up. I should have asked for the address. When someone calls 911, every second counts. For some reason, Teresa's peculiar circumstances made me completely forget about protocol. I still wonder if things would have been different had I sent an officer to her address earlier. Can you try another door? Already tried the door to my backyard. Is that one locked from the outside too? This is wrong. Someone must have changed the locks when I was sleeping. A chilling sensation washed over my back and crawled down my arms. I made sure to conceal the unease in my voice. Therese, this might be a dumb question, but are you sure you're in your own home? I... Yes, it's the same exact house. Even the doors are the same. It's just the damn locks. They're on the other side. All right, Therese, give me your address, and I'll have an officer sent over. Anxiety began making my nose itch. Therese quickly recited her street address. Thank you. I'm sending someone right... What the fuck? Oh, Jesus Christ. How the hell is this happening? Therese? (sighs) Windows are locked, too. Like, they're bolted shut. An officer is on the way, Therese. Stay with me. Ah! None of my windows are opening. I'm locked inside my own home. Just stay relaxed, Therese. Officer McCready will be there shortly. Therese? Mother of God! Not even a crack. I threw a chair at the window and not a single crack. My breathing began to mirror Therese's. I looked up and saw the dwindling light of the sun disappear behind the hills. I made sure to breathe through my nose and with my stomach. I had to stay calm. Therese, Officer McCready should be there soon. I don't think she heard me. I don't have shatterproof windows. They should have shattered into a million pieces. This isn't my house. Therese, look out your front window. Do you recognize your surroundings? There's my Camry, the front lawn, and my pink mailbox. There's nothing. Therese, talk to me. I see something glowing down the street. It's coming closer. The tension disappeared from my shoulders. Probably Officer McCready. Hang in there, Therese. I got a dispatch from Officer McCready. He had just arrived at the address. Therese, Officer McCready has just arrived. He says he's out front. I don't see anybody. Just the orange glow coming. Stay with me, Therese. I checked with Officer McCready. He assured me he was at the right address and had begun investigating. They're people. People holding torches. A knot of unease had begun tightening in my stomach. I could feel my hands getting wet and sticky. I warned Officer McCready of possible hostiles. He radioed back. There wasn't anyone out front, much less an orange glow. Oh, God. 
There was no protocol for this, which made me start to panic as well. Therese, can you hide or get upstairs? There's at least 40 people. Maybe more outside. What do I do? Just get to safety. A closet or a bedroom where you can lock them out. Can you hear that? Please tell me you hear that. Therese, just get yourself locked away where nobody can get to you. <laughs> I tried rebidding the call. Perhaps McCready really was at the wrong address. My heart sank as I saw where the call was coming from. It was the same address Therese had given me. The same address Officer McCready was currently investigating. I again warned McCready, but he told me to stop screwing with him. He assured me that the house was completely empty. There was a Camry in the driveway, but the entire property was empty. It's coming through. They want... My supervisor had come by. She asked if I was okay. I said I was fine, and she nodded even though I was obviously lying. Officer McCready radioed in. He finished his investigation with nothing to report. The front door was unlocked when he came in. The house was empty. Not a single trace of Therese. He didn't know what else to do. If not for the call, there wouldn't be any reason to be at the residence. At this point, I was completely deflated. Therese didn't sound like she was lying, and I had experience detecting fake callers. Yet, despite everything, I managed to convince myself that it was a prank. An elaborate prank to be sure, but still a prank. I wasn't ready for McCready's revelations two days after. The next day, McCready was called back to the same address. Neighbors had called in complaining of a disgusting stench that had wafted into their house. It came from the house Therese supposedly called from. As he tells it, he walked through the front door and was immediately assaulted by the stench of a dirty whore sucking ass through a garden hose dipped in shit. His words. McCready didn't find the source immediately, but noticed a bulge in the wallpaper in the dining room. After equipping himself with gloves, he walked up to the wallpaper and ripped it away. He told me that the blast of noxious fumes coupled with the horrific sight nearly made him vomit. Hanging from the wall was the top half of a rotting female corpse. Strips of decaying flesh hung off the bones as blood began dripping to the floor. Perhaps more bizarrely were the spiderwebs and clumps of moldering foliage that had held the rotting remains up against the wall. There was no bottom half. McCready said the corpse appeared to reach out as if trying to escape from the wall. Surely enough, the remains were eventually analyzed and confirmed to belong to Therese Stedman. As terrifying as this revelation was, it wasn't the end. McCready shared one more thing with me personally, something he left out of the report. After the initial shock of the discovery, McCready noticed burn marks or etchings in the wall under the top half of the hanging remains. These markings were about the size of a dinner plate. They looked awfully similar to the bottom half of a nude female body, and they aligned perfectly under the hanging monstrosity. Around the remains were other small markings resembling torch-wielding figures. These figures were hooded with their arms raised, as if they were all chanting.
Witnessing a traumatic event can leave a long-lasting impression. You associate things with that moment. Smells, sights, sounds. Any of these stimuli can provoke a strong reaction in you. And in this tale, shared with us by author Celine Graspi, we meet a woman suffering from the trauma of witnessing her sister's death. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Mick Wingert, Mike Delgadio, Danielle McRae, and Jessica McAvoy. So think about those events of the past and why they might be haunting you in the present. The answers will snap into place. Just listen for the click. something, but I couldn't hear it. I wouldn't let myself. There was a moment, a smothered scream, and then quiet. I could only remember the click. Calm down. Deep breaths. Inhale and exhale. I was alone. I was in my safe place, and no one could hurt me. I snapped the rubber band against my wrist, not hard, but just enough to feel it. I ran to the window and peered through the blinds. I wasn't expecting anyone today, or really any other day. What if, what if that man was outside? It isn't him. You're being ridiculous. My rational brain knew that, but my nerves were on fire. From the bay window, I could see a tall man in dark pants and a maroon t-shirt standing on my porch. His back was towards me, and for an instant, I thought it could be the masked man. I closed my eyes and snapped the rubber band again. The doctor said I should take something to relax before it got bad. Maggie. Maggie, I know you're in there, so come on and open the door. It's just me, for God's sake. I opened my eyes and saw Kevin, my ever-dutiful ex-husband, with the classic looks and physique of someone ten years younger. Even though he was retired, he always kept a hand on his belt close to his imaginary semi-automatic pistol. He had aged well, a lot better than I had, which was why he was remarried to a woman half his age. I often wondered if he still had his wandering eyes and greedy hands. I guess it didn't bother Carla the way it bothered me. He noticed me through the crack in the blinds and then picked up two bags of groceries, motioning for me to open the door. I pulled my silk robe tightly around my waist and debated whether I should put on lipstick. Maggie, hurry up before the ice cream melts. I unlocked the deadbolt and opened the door just wide enough for Kevin to slide through. He rolled his eyes as he squeezed through the doorway and I rushed to lock it behind him. He brushed past me on the way to the kitchen. I can do that. I motioned for the bags, but he held them firmly. Don't worry about it. He placed them on the island and started unloading. Now that I'm retired, I like helping out around the house. I bet you find that hard to believe. Well, Carla is a lucky woman. Don't be petty. Kevin placed a few frozen dinners in the freezer. Those lean cuisines you like were on sale, so I got you enough for a week. You really don't have to do this. Maggie, you say that every week. Can't you see I'm not going anywhere? Stop trying to push me away and just say thank you. He crossed his arms and cocked his head. I examined my nails and avoided his gaze, just as I had done a million times before. I put up the facade that I thought he would budge. 
But he was a stubborn mule and there was nothing that could change his mind. Thank you. You're welcome. He smirked and then continued unpacking. When's your next appointment? This afternoon. Good. I was going to suggest you have a session today. The anniversary is tomorrow. Not that I need to remind you. It's just that I was worried, is all. You know, this is a big one. I'll be all right. I've survived nine anniversaries, and so I know I can survive this one. Sounds like the new counselor is working better than the last. Kevin washed a Granny Smith apple and handed it to me. There's always a honeymoon period with each of them. We'll see if it lasts. This guy went to Princeton, if that matters, which it doesn't, really. Are you still using your treadmill? Every other day, but I'm going to try and do a little more this week. Get the endorphins going. I took a bite of the crisp green apple. How are you doing? Her anniversary doesn't just affect me. Well, she wasn't my sister. She was your sister-in-law. I glanced down at the apple. The inside was littered with brown spots. Okay, okay, don't get worked up about it. Obviously, she was important to me, too. Just not in the same way. How about we do something special tomorrow to commemorate her, hmm? Maybe get in touch with some of her old friends and see if they want to get together and share stories? I glared at him. I'm just trying to help. You've done enough. Bringing groceries every week and helping me set up online access to my accounts, taking care of the landscaping, and shoveling the snow. I really am grateful for everything, but I want to spend tomorrow in my house by myself where I know I'm safe. Maggie, the outside world can be safe too. Remember we used to spend a lot of time out there? It's not such a bad place. As usual, I have enjoyed our little visit, but shouldn't you be on your way? He noticed his gold wristwatch and sighed. <sighs> I guess I should get going. The time's getting on. Time. 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 It played in my head like a loop, each word pounding harder against my skull until I felt lightheaded and needed to lie down. Helen's voice was calling through the fog of my muddled brain, and I couldn't silence her. I raced to the cabinet and pulled out my pills, taking one out and throwing it to the back of my throat. I snapped the elastic a few times and then took a deep breath. Are you okay? I can stay a while. No, please, just go. I need to lie down. Tomorrow. I'll come back tomorrow just to check on you, make sure you're okay. Kevin... Don't argue with me. I'll see you tomorrow. He nodded and then walked out of the house. Good afternoon, Maggie. Dr. Wexler's large, round glasses appeared on my computer screen. I sat back in my desk chair. Hello. How are you feeling today? I had a moment earlier today. Three moments, really. A few flashbacks. Did you take your medication? Yes. Did it help? Yes, it did. Excellent. Did you try any grounding techniques? Yes, I used the elastic band. I held up my wrist. It helped, too. I'm impressed. You're really learning to control your symptoms. Was your ex-husband there when they occurred? I know what you're going to say, and I told him that he needs to stop helping. I said it more than once. You've told him this before on more than one occasion. 
And yet, do you expect a different outcome? I know that I want to lose weight, but I also love a chocolate glazed donut in the morning with my coffee. If I keep telling myself I need to lose weight, but I also keep eating donuts, do you think anything's going to change? You don't need to lose weight. That's not the point. I know, I know. I've had enough therapy to know better. You want me to show him that I don't need his help instead of asking. I turned and gazed at the white, fluffy clouds through the back window. I opened the curtains today. Excellent progress. Now, how about we try what we talked about last week? Maybe crack a window and let some fresh air in the house? I can stay online with you the whole time. I know, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and I do want to try. I'm just worried that it's going to happen again. It seems to happen every time. You've got better control of your reactions and emotions. The only way to leave that house one day is by conquering your fears one step at a time. I know you're right. Uh, I'm willing to try again. All right. When you're ready, I want you to stand up and walk over to the window. I swiveled my chair to the window and pressed my lips together. I twisted the rubber band around my wrist and inhaled deeply. The first step. I just needed to take one step, and then the rest would follow, easier than the one before it. I knew I'd have to try this one day, and I suppose today was as good as any other. I stood up. I stepped towards the window. My eyes closed. You're doing great, Maggie. I'm right here with you. I took another few steps with my hands outstretched until my fingertips touched warm, dusty glass. My hands were trembling as I felt my way to the latch and then the side of the window. I was almost there. I had my fingers on the ledge and I, I was ready to pull it open. Now open it. I heard a grinding noise as the window budged open and then a warm breeze blew against my face. It was hot out today, and for the first time in a long time, I remembered what it felt like to sit outside with a cold glass of lemonade and bask in the sunlight. The air smelled like flowers and freshly cut grass, and I listened to the buzzing of my neighbor's lawnmower. What do you see? I opened my eyes and stared up at the clouds drifting lazily in the sky. Birds flew back and forth between the tops of the trees, calling to each other and flying through the air in some sort of ordered chaos. My gaze drifted down when I caught sight of her. My heart leapt up in my throat and, and I couldn't breathe. Her face was pale and her long stringy hair had hung limply off her head. There was bruising all around her neck that trailed down her chest past her torn and stained blue dress. She's there. She's there again. Helen was staring at me through cloudy and faded blue eyes. Dr. Wexler, she's down there. I couldn't turn away. Helen was holding me there against my will. What do I do? Helen opened her mouth, and my head pounded with a loud clicking noise that set me reeling across the room. I turned and saw Dr. Wexler's frozen face on my computer screen. I forced myself up and dragged myself across the carpet to the window. I was in a full sweat as I reached my hand up and pulled the window closed with my last ounce of strength. I sat panting against the wall, snapping the elastic band against my wrist and trying to slow my breathing. Maggie, are you okay? 
My computer froze and I couldn't see what happened. I was sobbing uncontrollably. I couldn't stop it. It was happening all over again. I started to retch up bile right onto the carpet. Why couldn't she just leave me the hell alone? Was she there? Maggie, please answer me. Do you want me to call an ambulance? (laughs) I can't. I can't. I can't do this anymore. (sighs) I woke up the next morning, my head still full of ghosts, and swallowed a pill. Dr. Wexler was coming by this morning to check on me. I begged him not to, but he insisted after I finally settled from the incident. It was all I could do to stop him from calling EMS. I rolled out of bed and forced myself to shower and dress like most people do. I figured I should try to give the outward appearance that I was trying. I would never feel right on the inside. I knew that now, but at least I could look like it. Dr. Wexler knocked on the door as I was pouring coffee. Last night I told him I would leave it unlocked ten minutes before he arrived so I wouldn't have to come close to the outdoors. I heard him enter the house, but he didn't lock it behind him like we had agreed. I poured an extra mug and turned to hand it to him when I saw Kevin. I placed the cup back on the counter. I wasn't expecting you. Who were you expecting? He had his hands on his belt in that traditional stance I grew to loathe. Kevin, I told you not to come today. And I told you that I was coming whether you like it or not. It's for your own good. On today of all days, you shouldn't be alone. He glanced down at the steaming mug. So, who's that cup of coffee for? It's really none of your business, Kevin. Please, just go. The big ape balled up his fists and puffed out his chest before ripping out a flash of silver from his pocket. A vein bulged in his neck as he swung it in the air. And I fell back against the kitchen counter. It hurt just to look at it. I had this made for you so you could always remember her, so you could move on. So here you go, you ungrateful cow. He threw the watch at me and I let it drop to the floor, the glass cracking across the face before it rolled over, revealing the inscription on the back. To Helen, love always, Maggie. I I, I don't want this here. I raced to the cupboard and dropped my pills on the counter. Get it out of here, now! Hello? Is everything okay? Dr. Wexler walked into the kitchen with his briefcase in hand. He was a lot shorter and stockier than I imagined. He surveyed the scene for a minute as the air started to fill up the room and I could breathe again. Ah, you must be Kevin. It's nice to finally meet you. Same to you, Dr. Wexler. Do you mind if I have a quick word outside? With all due respect, Kevin, you're not my patient. And I have to be back at the office in one hour. Perhaps we can talk another day. Dr. Wexler's calm demeanor brought life back into the house. Sure. Kevin trudged to the door. Happy anniversary! He slammed the door behind him. I think I got here at the right time. Time! 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 My eyes drifted towards the pocket watch, and I saw the masked man in front of me. He was right there, standing where Dr. Wexler had been a moment ago. His back was to me, and he pointed to the window. And suddenly I was back, back to that horrible night. I walked from my bed to the window facing the backyard and saw her there. 
She was young again, in her blue dress, beautiful as ever, and holding the watch in her hand. I could see it glimmering in the moonlight. She turned and waved at me, and I waved back. She checked her watch and closed it. She said something then and made to walk inside when the masked man came up behind her. I watched as he grabbed her by the throat and and squeezed the life out of her. Her eyes bulged out of her head and her face turned purple. Once she was on the ground, I fell back onto the bed. Stop it, stop it, please. Please stop and leave me alone. Haven't you done enough? Maggie, Maggie, you're safe. Dr. Wexler was sitting next to me on the floor. I'm sorry, but this is for your own good. He held his phone up to his ear. Please send an ambulance to 15 Dearborn Crescent. I opened my eyes and brushed a few blonde hairs off my face. A hospital ID band bearing my name hung off my wrist. I was tucked under a white flannel in a hospital bed with the four rails up. Across from the bed were a wall-sized mirror and a door that was slightly ajar. I could hear two voices on the other side. One I recognized as Dr. Wexler's and the other was younger and female. Are you keeping her here on a farm? Well, at this point I believe she could be a harm to herself and so, yes, at least for the next 48 hours. Maggie hasn't left her house in 10 years, and so I need you to keep a close eye on her. Everything is going to be unfamiliar and scary to her. 10 years? How is she surviving? With help from her ex-husband. He will likely try to visit her here at some point and will want to speak with us. Let me remind you that since he is her ex-husband, we will not be sharing any of our medical diagnoses or treatments with him. He's also a retired cop, so don't let his authoritative attitude sway you. Of course. So, what is the official diagnosis? Agoraphobia? She doesn't present with typical agoraphobia. It's related to post-traumatic stress disorder. Whenever she attempts to leave the house, she sees her sister's dead body in the yard. Maggie's only been my patient for a few months, and so what I've learned so far I've gathered from what she's told me and public records. The story goes that Maggie was home asleep one night when she heard a noise that woke her. Her husband was working the night shift, and so she was home alone. It was a hot summer's night, and the windows were wide open, so she could hear the noises from the yard. She went to the window and saw her sister Helen outside talking to a man in a balaclava, which frightened her, so she hid out of sight. Helen checked the time on her pocket watch. Time. Time. Time! Her sister then said something that Maggie either couldn't hear or blocked from memory. And then Helen turned away from the masked man and began walking to the house. The man grabbed her from behind and strangled her to death. Maggie watched the whole thing. Oh my, that poor soul. Maggie ran to the telephone and called the police. But by the time she returned to the window, both her sister and the man were gone. Helen's body was never found and the killer has never been identified. If I were her, I might never leave the house either. So what was the trigger for this admission? Seeing her dead sister? No, actually. It was a pocket watch that her ex-husband brought her. What kind of sick bastard would do that? Dr. Wexler's eye peered through the doorway and I pretended to sleep, hoping he wouldn't see me. 
Let's continue this chat in my office. I think our patient is waking up. Later this afternoon, when we do our rounds, I'll introduce you. She is a very interesting case study. I stared up at the ceiling. When your life is condensed into a short paragraph, it doesn't feel like yours anymore. It felt like listening to my obituary. Was I really the lady who stayed in her house for ten years? Is that how I would be remembered? I stared up at the ceiling for a while until I gave in to boredom and dozed off again. Kevin appeared, his face halfway through the doorway. He cowered in the doorway like a wounded animal, and I can't say I felt an ounce of sympathy. I wished I hadn't opened my eyes. How are you? I know this is the last place you want to be. They're taking good care of me, and I haven't had any flashbacks, so I'm okay. Well, that's good then. He came and stood at the edge of my bed. Listen, I'm so sorry. I never should have brought you that pocket watch. It was a mistake, and I feel like a complete moron. I don't know why I thought it would help. To be honest, I, I don't even remember buying it. I really don't know what came over me. I never told you about the pocket watch, Kevin. I don't even know how you heard about it. It must have been in the news or the case files at the precinct. The police never found her watch. And I didn't tell anyone about the inscription. And yet, there it was on the back, like the handwritten note of a killer. I sat myself up in bed and glared at him. What are you trying to say? He suddenly had an odd expression. Then he pulled a silver pocket watch from his pants and dangled it in the air. Why the hell would you bring that here? I didn't. I swear. He flung it down to the ground. Think about it. It was at your house when I left. I had my finger on the bell, ready to call for the nurse, but suddenly became totally paralyzed in fear. There she was, standing behind him, in the corner of the hospital room, her cloudy blue eyes fixed on the back of Kevin's head. Kevin pulled out his hand from his other pocket, and a clump of long blonde hairs came with it. How is this happening? He threw the bloody hair on the ground. It's impossible. It can't be real. Kevin, what did you do? Tell me what you did to her. I know how this might seem, Maggie. I had to stop her. That's why I did what I did. I wanted to tell you so many times. It, 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 it was you. How, how could you have done something like that to my own sister? It... He clutched his throat. It was her. I'm not a murderer. He swallowed hard. Helen and I were seeing each other off and on over the years, and no matter how many times I tried to end it, she would always manipulate me back into her life. The night she died, she had made a plan for us to get rid of you. Helen wanted me all to herself, and I wouldn't let her do it, Maggie. I knew I had to stop her somehow. His face was turning bright red, and he seemed like he might explode. I'm sorry. I never wanted this. He grappled at invisible hands and eventually collapsed on the floor. 
My gaze shifted to Helen in the corner of the room. She hadn't moved. However, she had a slight smirk on her face at the sight of Kevin's lifeless body. Helen turned her head just slightly to meet my eyes. In a flash, she was beside my bed, holding the pocket watch over my face. It turned on its chain to reveal the inscription. It looked just as polished as the day I bought it for her. I cowered under the blankets as Helen snapped the pocket watch closed. Time's up. There's always that one home on the block. You know the one. The neighborhood kids avoid it. You avoid it. There's just something about it. It's creepy. But in this tale, shared with us by author Chris Curiata, we meet a man who lives directly adjacent to such a property, and new owners are moving in. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, Dan Zapula, Jessica McAvoy, and Ellie Hirschman. So keep your distance, but keep your neighbors close. You don't want anyone to be affected by the house next door to me. I've never set foot inside the house next door, but Marcy has. Seeing the U-Hauls and the new family settling in excited her. I did my best to keep close watch, but the moment I dozed off for a nap, Marcy loaded a plate with cookies and scampered over to welcome them to the neighborhood. Obviously, the house sold cheap after that bad business a few years back. Some people pride themselves on not being superstitious. Me? I pride myself on looking out for your loved ones. When Marcy and I first met, there was still foreign soil on my uniform. She birthed me four children, three that lived. She slept beside me every night for 45 years, minus two nights I visited my asshole brother Dwayne on his deathbed. I knew every inch of that woman, even the parts I would have preferred to keep mysterious, so believe me. I'd know immediately if the person who came back from next door was my Marcy or not. The shotgun dead asshole Dwayne left me, attached to an avalanche of invasive paperwork, sat on the couch. Two shots. One for Marcy and one for me, so I wouldn't have to suffer a lot of foolish questions before being hauled off to prison. The front door creaked open. Lloyd, are you sitting in the dark? My eyes stung when Marcy hit the light switch with the edge of her empty cookie platter. I hadn't realized the sky turned so dark. She'd been gone a long time. Marcy went into the kitchen to rinse the plate. They put on coffee. We got to chatting. Nice people. She came into the living room and frowned at the gun. Marcy hated seeing reminders of Duane, who treated her in ways a brother-in-law never should. What you doing with that thing? 
I had my finger on the trigger, the butt braced against my shoulder. Just keeping her in shape. Marcy plopped beside me, pulling her swollen feet from her flip-flops and resting them on the coffee table before picking up the clicker and tuning in 60 minutes. You ought to break that thing apart and bury it in the yard. Your days of shooting are long over. Thank you, Lord. I don't know why you're tempting accidents. I nodded like a good husband before giving her a wet peck on the cheek and shuffling into the kitchen to fetch her a Coke. After 45 years of marriage, I knew the woman on the couch was my Marcy, even before she rubbed between her toes and smelled her finger when she thought I wasn't looking. I was so happy to see her back, I said goddamn to the can and served her Coke in a glass. With ice. She leaned into me. Someone's anxious for favors. That night we got friendly between the sheets. Dead asshole Dwayne's shotgun lay beneath us, still loaded. Marcy may have come back fine, but I never knew when trouble might brew up again from the house next door, needing me to put Dwayne's inheritance to use. Some months later, the man from next door paid a visit. He hadn't changed out of his work shirt yet. A white button-up, the breast pocket crammed full of pens. I pictured him hunched over a drafting table, using a protractor to make calculations for the space program or some deal. He had one of those cushy, thinking jobs, nothing physical. Yet he came home wearing a shirt soaked through with sweat. It wasn't until he stood on my porch that it occurred to me his job might not be the problem stressing him out. How are doings over there? He threw a look over his shoulder, embarrassed by his unraked lawn. I kept our yard immaculate. Stray leaves kept blowing from the battlefield on his lawn, but I swept them up efficiently without complaint. No need to make a federal case out of it. I understood the man's got a job and isn't available to keep on top of his property with the same rigor a retiree like me's got. I'm worried about the tree between our houses. Those branches might fall if we get too much ice this winter. I stepped outside, pretending to look at the tree. But really, I kept watch on that house of his. Everything looked nice and calm. The fresh white paint along the walls hadn't cracked yet, but I saw the kitchen curtains rustle. Something was peeking out at us. Yeah, it might do good to take a few of those branches down. One of the tree's dead, discolored arms hung directly over the neighbor's driveway. It would put a hell of a dent in the car hood if it ever fell. Pop the headlights, too. The front door opened and the wife stepped out, looking none too happy to see her husband and me together. The coldness of her suspicious gaze had me questioning if that truly was his wife anymore. Let me get the ladder out. Move your car and I'll cut that sucker down. Oh, no, no. It's, it's over my property. I'll do it if you want to lend me your chainsaw. I peered into his eyes to get an idea of where he was coming from. Did he want to cut down the tree branch himself because he was tired of his candy-ass job and wanted to feel the vibrations of heavy machinery in his soft hands? If he was looking for the satisfaction that came from completing the physical task, the crack of the branch, the whip of sawdust against his wrists, he could take my chainsaw. However, if he insisted on doing the job himself because he thought me some doddering old man who made him nervous to see on top of a ladder... Well, then he could go out and buy his own damn saw. Assuming, of course, he wanted the chainsaw for the tree at all. In the garage. 
I swallowed the last of my millers and dropped the can into the recycling bin, then motioned for the neighbor to follow. I'd fix him right up. Aren't you cold? The wife called from the edge of their leaf-strewn lawn, where she stood with her arms wrapped around herself. The judgment in her voice couldn't be clearer. The insinuation, you need to put something on and make yourself decent. I'd been nice and warm in the privacy of my own home before her husband dragged me out. Excuse me if I wasn't dressed for their convenience. My bare feet slapped the pavement as I waddled to the garage. Along the way, I stepped on something sharp, a piece of metal that bit into the bottom of my foot. The pain stayed in my throat. I didn't cry out, denying that woman the opportunity to nod and call, I told you to put something on. I lifted the garage door and jerked the light cord in the ceiling. My chainsaw sat on the workbench, well taken care of. Once I gassed her up, she'd be ready to go. Now thanks a bunch, Lloyd. The chainsaw looked awkward in the neighbor man's grasp, like I'd handed it to an eight-year-old. I grabbed another Miller's from the garage fridge. Bring that back in one piece and I'll have a beer for you. I took a sip. The wife frowned. She didn't want her husband making friends so close to home, especially not friends with well-stocked fridges. She was the sort of woman who believed home life was strictly family life. Friends belonged at work, out of sight, inaccessible once the sun went down. As I closed up the garage, I saw the curtains next door move again, confirming my suspicion of who was peeking out at us. You sure that's the right tool for the job? The neighbor didn't reply, just lugged my saw home. I lingered outside, sipping my beer, waiting for the sound of the chainsaw firing up, its healthy motor muted by the walls of the house next door. Instead, the neighbor returned, dressed in jeans and a sweatshirt, some goofy-looking swimming goggles dangling from around his neck. He pulled his car out of the driveway, giving space for the branch to drop. Seeing as he intended to use the chainsaw on the tree after all, and not for whatever problems were brewing inside his house, I closed up the garage and returned to my couch for a good nap, happily anticipating the sound of my saw sinking into the tree, filling the neighborhood with the music of physical labor. A clanging noise interrupted the steady buzzing of my chainsaw, like some fool banged the running blade with a hammer. Ah, oh, Christ. The blinds were shut to keep things private, blocking my sideline view of the neighbor's yard. I almost didn't want to see what he'd done to my chainsaw, likely damaging it. He'd apologized profusely, offered to buy me a new one, but that wasn't the damn point. When I opened the front door, the neighbor came staggering towards me, his hand clutched to his throat like he was begging for air. Over his shoulder, I saw the entire setup. The toppled ladder, the chainsaw crashed onto the asphalt, and two tiny figures scampering back into his house. Blood poured from a wide slit across the neighbor's neck, a thick, steady line of blood like I hadn't seen since I was in uniform. It didn't spurt, so I figured he still had a chance. I always keep spare keys in the truck, which saved me time fetching my main key ring. Those seconds could save the neighbor's life. I grabbed him round the waist and helped him through the passenger door. There was no time to tell his wife. She would have to put the pieces together on her own. 
During the drive to the hospital, I grabbed the neighbor by the top of his head and bent him forward. Blood drummed against the floorboards, and the neighbor gasped, drawing in air. Blood's pouring down your throat. When it fills up, you gotta lean over and let it drain out, otherwise you'll suffocate. At the hospital, the doctors dropped their professional armor at first sight of the neighbor. They looked terrified. After he survived, the doctors all yacked to the newspaper, saying it was a miracle. When the neighbor fell, he landed on the still-running chainsaw, which cut all the way through his windpipe. The only thing keeping his head on were his spine and tendons. According to one of the doctors, that he managed to survive long enough to walk to his neighbors and drive to the hospital is nothing short of remarkable. Someone could sustain that same injury in the hospital parking lot and wouldn't live. Which I thought was a stupid thing to say. I mean, when is someone gonna half cut off their head in the hospital parking lot? The emergency nurse asked if I wanted some coffee. She sounded real reverential, like I was the Pope or some deal. I noticed for the first time my hands were shaking. I hadn't had that much adrenaline poison in my blood since the jungle. Tell you the truth, honey, I could use a belt of something stronger. One of the orderlies, still wearing the neighbor's blood all over his smock, called out to her. Check Dr. Burchett's office. This man deserves it. Turns out I was a hero. And when you're a hero, hospital nurses will bring you a shot of rum, poured into a coffee mug to be real discreet. Next, they rustled up some sandals and a shirt for me, which I didn't put on. I wanted to stay barefoot in my jockeys until the neighbor's wife arrived. When she saw I was the one who delivered her husband and his nearly severed head to the hospital in the nick of time, I wanted to ask her, still think I ought to put something on? The noises started a little after midnight. Metallic bangs, someone rooting around inside my truck. Dead asshole Dwayne's shotgun lay under the bed. I didn't bother putting on slippers or even my drawers. The shotgun was all I needed to wear. The interior truck light shined yellow like an artificial sun. It was a dirty light, the kind you could go blind staring into too long. The intruders inside my truck bounced around, shaking the body like a couple of horny high school kids occupying the back. They made chattering noises like raccoons. Big raccoons. Next door, the window to the children's bedroom hung wide open. While Mom sobbed herself to sleep, worried about her injured husband, that two young boys must have slipped down the side of the wall, likely crawling head first. Inside the truck, the boys sensed my presence. They were hunched over, shoulders pressed together. When the large, round heads passed into the yellow light, their eyes gleamed like a cobra trying to hypnotize you. I'd never stood so close to the enemy before. Nighttime had changed them. Their heads swelled about a quarter larger than they should have been. Nearly all the boys' hair dropped off, except for a little bow-shaped patch atop their greasy, naked skulls. Everything about their shape and size was freakish, like flesh-and-blood versions of the Charlie Brown kid from the comics, only with pointier noses and sharper teeth. My training told me to back away, Keep the shotgun aimed, but prepared only to fire if the little ghouls came after me. Understand, there are some places you're well within your rights to blast away anyone creeping on your property in the middle of the night. But I hadn't pitched my tent in such a freedom-loving town. 
I couldn't risk shooting the neighbor's boys. For all I knew, they'd lose their monstrosities in death, shaping back into normal-looking children, and I'd have a whole lot of questions to answer. Questions that wouldn't be asked nice, if you know what I mean. Maybe if I shot them having broken into my house, I might escape jail. But not outside in the driveway, where the law would argue I wasn't acting in self-defense. Once the neighbor's boys realized I wasn't a threat, they resumed what they'd been doing, lowering their heads to suck their father's congealed blood from the truck floorboards. Their tongues bristled against the rough rug, sounding like tiny zippers. It made me wretch to watch them, but I couldn't look away. Marcy got lonely in bed and woke up to find me in the kitchen, can of Miller's in hand, staring out the window at my yellow truck light, shining like the rising moon. I may have looked like I was using that light to make a wish. It's breezy in here. What's going on? Big raccoons. She looked at dead asshole Dwayne's shotgun resting below my bare belly, and for a moment she considered taking it away from me. Forty-five years of marriage lets you read minds on occasion. I clenched my teeth. Marcy knew to leave me be, and she went back to bed, leaving me and the shotgun to our post. I felt hopeful when the truck light went out. The boys slammed the door and scampered across the driveway on all fours, looking little different from big raccoons. I'd left my kitchen door open, but the boys didn't take the bait. The little monsters seemed to know better than to force their way into my house, onto my territory, where I'd have more freedom to gun them down. I was disappointed at first, but then I decided you couldn't ask much more than that for your home to be safe ground. After the hospital, I'd filled the back of my truck with supplies, a couple red cans of gasoline, some wedges to keep the doors secured tight. My plans changed. Tomorrow, I'd take the red cans to the garage. They'd be good for the mower all next year. As long as the neighbor's boys intended on leaving our house alone, I had no business messing around with theirs. I'd leave any correction of them to their parents. After a harsh winter, basement pipes froze, truck engine died, spring arrived. Once the ice between our pathways melted, the neighbor man came knocking again. I'd been in the garage, moving salt bags and sweeping up grit and stones, when he presented me with my chainsaw. She'd been forgotten in all the excitement. The blade had been cleaned off. Hard to believe the jagged teeth and cold steel had kissed the inside of his neck. Much appreciated. The neighbor man raised a black box to his jagged, scarred throat. I wanted to thank you in person. Dead asshole Dwayne spoke his last words with the aid of one of those little devices. The neighbor man, Mr. Miracle as the doctors like to call him, should have been able to speak fine after his sewn together windpipe healed, only there'd been a complication. Sawdust got trapped in the wound and ended up causing an infection. Wasn't that something? Man survives nearly cutting his own head off only to lose his voice to some sawdust. I didn't figure you needed me coming by the hospital. The neighbor man held up a hand. You didn't come to the house either. You know what the holidays are like. We all get busy. 
The neighbor man checked over his shoulder before stepping behind the garage door like he was some woman I was having an affair with, ducking out of sight so none of the neighbors saw us together. Behind him, I saw the kitchen curtains move. The smell of decayed flesh clung to the neighbor, bacteria pouring out of the wound in his neck. He needed that cleaned immediately. I'd seen the horrifying progression of dead flesh on a living body in the jungle. I fully expected this smell to trigger old ghosts later that night when I fell asleep. The neighbor put the black box into his pocket and tapped his lips. I understood the gesture. In dead asshole Dwayne's final hours, he hadn't the strength to lift his box to his neck, but he still had things to say. I sat on the edge of his bed, just like Mother used to when the pair of us needed cold compresses on our chest, and read his lips. I understood most of what Dwayne had to say. There was no fucking apology, I knew that for a fact. The neighbor moved his lips slowly. You're scared to come inside my house. I nodded. There's no shame in admitting fear. Not wanting to talk about the scary times isn't the same as pretending they never happened. I've lived here 15 years. It was all I could say, thinking that ought to explain everything. A person learns a lot in 15 years. Which rain seasons will flood your basement, which branches will come down during a storm. But most of all, you learn to mind your own business. When the rotten house's previous owner came over to borrow my hatchet, he asked why I didn't warn him. There's no sense telling people things they won't understand. People need to learn in their own time. You never would have believed. None of them ever did. So I gave up trying to look after anyone besides Marcy and me. The neighbor grabbed the back of my head and pulled me close. For a moment, I felt like the V-Day nurse in that famous picture my daddy clipped out of Life magazine and posted on his garage wall. Instead of kissing me, the neighbor man signaled with his mouth, Are those my children? That's a question I've heard before, and it always makes me sad, because it's a question full of hope. What he meant was, have my children been replaced? If he chopped the heads off those wicked bastards wearing the skin of his two boys, would their severed necks be packed full of cotton or robot parts? He dreamed of defeating the sniggering, drooling ghouls that had been tormenting him and his wife since last fall, and finding his true children hidden away somewhere, in the walls maybe. He'd set his boys free from the prison their imposters stuffed them in. The good sons would wrap their arms around Daddy, and they'd resume being a happy family. My heart broke, telling him we'd gone past the point of no return. The house hadn't switched his boys. The evil inside had changed them. Those are your boys. I snuck a peek outside and saw the kitchen curtains hanging straight. The two boys weren't watching us anymore. They didn't need to. They knew what we were talking about. The smell of decayed flesh grew stronger, coming not just from his neck, but his clothes and his hair. He reeked of the dead, as though he lay down each night to sleep beside it. I tried to recall the last time I saw his wife. She'd been a regular fixture in their windows, always looking out into the distance as if for some cavalry she thought might arrive if they kept their smoke signal strong. Even Marcy remarked on not seeing the wife lately, said she might visit to check, and I squeezed her wrist until it bruised, telling her to stay put. The people next door didn't want to bother them when they needed time to heal. I'm so thankful to have done that, even though Marcy shrank from me. 
afraid I'd put my hands on her again. Do me a favor. I already had a good idea what that was. We didn't say goodbye or shake hands. I watched him trudge home, carrying the two red cans of gasoline. They looked heavy for him, like the strain might break the wound on his neck wide open, but he made it into the house. An hour later, when smoke filled the air and orange light danced in our window, I kept Marcy from calling the fire department. I made sure the house burned, as a good neighbor would. I didn't grab Marcy rough, leaving more bruises. This time, I wrapped her in my arms and stifled her panic cries with my lips, kissing her just like the picture of the nurse and the sailor my daddy kept hanging on the wall of his garage until the day he died. It's weird how some people paint their houses. Most are muted, normal, or natural brick color. But every now and then you'll get one so garish, so standout, that you can't help but turn your head as you walk past. And in this tale, shared with us by author Veronica Lee, we meet a man who's bought one such home and who's discovering that even the most colorful of places can hold darkness. I join Atticus Jackson, Sarah Thomas, and Jessica McAvoy in performing this tale. So explore your bright new house, peel back the shadows, look for what lurks in the Pink Palace. Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I was thinking of the Pink Palace again. Please, don't roll your eyes at me. You don't understand. You can't fathom the Pink Palace until you go there yourself. And then you'll comprehend the hold it has on me. The war had come to an end, and with enough points I was honorably discharged and at long last able to go back home, wherever home was. After years of fighting and bloodshed and liberating one of those camps, I didn't want to return to my hometown. I couldn't. My folks were gone, and those that knew me would have hailed me as some conquering hero. And I wasn't. The real heroes never came back. I wanted to go someplace where no one knew me. So I unfolded a map of the United States, closed my eyes, and decided wherever my finger landed, that'd be where I'd call home. The fates guided my pointer to a town in the middle of nowhere. It was the kind of town where a man could start over and be anything he wanted to be. Stepping off the train, the town was as much as I expected it to be. 
Small enough, if you were driving past and blinked, you'd miss it completely. The main roads were paved. The side roads were a combination of brick and gravel. There was a courthouse smack dab in the center, across the street from the jail-slash-police station, and catty-corner from the school and church. A mom-and-pop shop served most of the town's needs. Homes filled in the lots that otherwise would be empty and overgrown with grass and field mice. My first week in town, I stumbled across this Queen Anne-styled house painted a bright salmon color. Bright enough, it burned into my retinas and made me see red spots for hours. The mansion, with its stained glass windows and a wraparound porch, had been left vacant since the owner died. In desperate need of repairs and a new paint job on the outside, something less girly, it had potential. It'll be the perfect place to call home and start a family, I concluded after the real estate agent gave me the tour. Well, provided I met the right girl. I bought it, spending every last cent of my savings on it, and I moved in right away. The outside repairs came first, before the valley realized it was October and autumn's perpetual chill descended upon us. It had been eight months, but I had yet to shake off the iciness that had settled in my bones when my company and I were hunkered down in foxholes in Bastogne. That kind of cold never leaves you. The next morning, I was out working on the sagging fence that encircled the property. I was resetting one of the posts when one of my neighbors sashayed up, bearing a plate of cookies. Sashayed was the only word to describe how she moved, jutting her hips back and forth. Standing upright, heat flooded my face. She couldn't have been a day over fifteen, but she had poured herself into a dress far too small for her. She was painted and perfumed and poised to pounce. Hello there. The girl wriggled her fingers and batted her black, clumpy eyelashes. My name's Mary Beth, and I live nearby. What's your name? James Tucker. I gulped and ducked my head, keeping my eyes on the ground. Young as she was, it felt wrong to look at her for too long, but she would not take the hint. Mary Beth shoved the plate of cookies in my hands. Welcome to the neighborhood. I bake these for you. She licked her darkly painted lower lip, smearing the lipstick over her crooked teeth. They're chocolate chip. Thank you. I nodded and clutched the plate of treats close as a means of protection. If this poor little girl were throwing herself at any other guy, I would have had a good laugh. Like many schoolgirls, she was eager to have a boyfriend and set her sights on me, the new single man in town. Taking her cue from the movies, she painted herself thicker than a barn door, a mask caked on her face three shades darker than the rest of her. Borrowing a dress from her mother or older sister, I could see the bumps she had in front were lopsided like she was a character from a Picasso painting. Her hair was still crumpled from having been plated in two tails and hung in ripples around her shoulders. Mary Beth clasped her hands in front of her, edging closer. 
The whole town is surprised that you snatched up the pink palace. That's what we call it in these parts, because the man who owned it, old Mr. Galsworthy, lived like a king and expected to be treated as such. The house has been empty for a while now. I see. I tried to keep my responses simple. That way it wouldn't encourage her to keep hanging around. Or to return. She was nice enough, but she was a kid. And a fellow my age, in his late 20s, had no business looking twice at a child. Once she figured out that I wasn't like one of the romanticized heroes in the movies, she'd move on to greener pastures. Have you noticed anything interesting? Mary Beth tipped her head back and took a long gander at the Pink Palace. They say it's haunted, you know. By old Mr. Galsworthy? I heaved a roll of my eyes. Little girls think all large, unoccupied ancient houses are haunted. Truth be told, all small towns tend to believe the same thing. They share the same rumors and the same superstitions. Doesn't matter the state or the country, even. They have much in common. And there was always one house in the neighborhood that folks whisper about and avoid if they can. Especially if the previous owner was creepy as hell. It's always haunted, always mysterious, always full of lore and gore. Mary Beth gave an unladylike snort and shook her head. <laughs> no, by his daughter. She disappeared a long time ago. The girl took a step closer, and her sharp little fingers latched onto my sweaty forearm. Her eyes shone brightly, brighter than a noonday sun. Between you and me, Mr. Galsworthy killed her. He got off scot-free because he was richer than God. I think he had to chop her up in itty-bitty pieces and stuff her in the walls. Her ghost drove him to madness and he jumped off the bridge. There are all sorts of noises and lights flickering and... <clears throat> I forced an awkward cough which snapped her out of her reveries and I pried her fingers off. Okay, well, thanks for the cookies. After seeing my bodies blown to bits, hearing gruesome stories, no matter how ridiculous they were, and that she probably got straight out of a romance, made my stomach twist into knots. Images of blood spewing and chopped up body parts didn't sit well with me. I should put these inside before the flies start swarming. I backed away and bounded up the steps, nearly dropping the plate and the cookies all over the front porch. But I kept my balance and made it to the front door. Stupid me made the mistake of glancing back over my shoulder when Mary Beth called out. I cringed when she blew me a kiss. Barreling into the pink palace, I shut the door behind me and hoped to God that Mary Beth would find another boy to set her sights on. The last thing I needed was to worry about some schoolgirl crush getting out of hand and making trouble. I brushed Mary Beth's imaginings aside. At least, I tried to. It was nearing autumn, and your mind turns gothic then. You begin to see a witch's curled hand from a tree branch shadow on your bedroom wall, and every black cat you cross is the minion of the devil. Don't get me started about birds smacking in the windows. Messengers of death 
That's what they are. That night, I lay huddled into a ball beneath a thin blanket, terrorized by every creak and rattle that rickety houses are prone to make. The damn house had made the exact same noises the night before, but fear cast out all logic. For crying out loud, I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane during the war, fought Nazis, seen the depths of hell. And there I was, shaking in my bed, scared shitless from a neighbor girl's stories. Something had changed. The soul of the Pink Palace had been resurrected. When a thunderous crash reverberated through the upper story, the attic. I jumped out of bed and snatched the gun out of my nightstand drawer. God only knows what I thought I could do to a ghost using a gun. No one smart brings a gun to a supernatural fight. Creeping up the attic stairs, when I reached the top, I nearly dropped my gun on finding a single lit candle on the floor. and a small person cowering in the crevice. Not the transparent, ethereal being that I had expected, but a flesh-and-blood woman as real as you or me. My mouth swung open and my tongue was soon coated in stale dust, making me gag. Backing into my closed fist, questions swirled through my mind. Did she break in? She was crushing her palms to her face, but by the looks of her ratted dark mane and raggedy yellow dress, I began to wonder if she were homeless and somehow snuck in when I wasn't looking. The poor woman shook hard enough that I could feel the wooden floor shudder beneath my feet. Whatever she was, she wasn't a threat. Not to me. I laid my weapon down and approached, my hands raised in surrender. Hey, who are you? My name is James. I crouched down to her level and offered my hand to her. She trembled, bunching her shoulders to burrow within herself like one of those hard-shell bugs. The whimpers she made sent chills down my spine. The woman reminded me of one of those prisoners that I saw when my company liberated that concentration camp. Skin over bones, dirty, lost souls. Some of them had been so broken in spirit they forgot who they were, where they came from, and could no longer recall their native language. They were desperate for a sign of compassion, but too skittish to come too close. I won't hurt you, I swear. Then I remembered that those prisoners were emboldened when we began to pass out food. Uh, Hang on. I held up a finger and scooted away from her. I sprinted down two flights of stairs, skidding into walls and stubbing my big toe. But I kept going. The woman had easily snuck into the house so she could just as easily sneak out. I couldn't let someone like that out on the streets, not when she needed help and a psychiatrist of some kind. But, first things first, she needed food in her belly. I made it to the kitchen and slapped together a bologna and cheese sandwich and grabbed a few of those cookies that Mary Beth brought over. 
careful not to drop any of it. I ran up the stairs two at a time, thanking God when I found the woman in the exact place I had left her. She flinched when I moved close, her whole frame stiffening, but her shoulders drooped when she saw that I had brought her food. Her hands were away from her face, but the light wasn't strong enough for me to get a good glimpse of her. All I could make out were her large, rounded eyes. Eyes that beheld a similar expression that those camp inmates had. Here. I smiled and nodded encouragingly when she accepted the meal from me. Can I get you anything else? She shook her head and took a large bite out of the sandwich, tearing into it as though she hadn't eaten for days. How did you get in here? I've always been up here. She swallowed the last crumb of sandwich. Instantly, she crammed one of the cookies into her mouth. Daddy said it was for the best. Daddy? Old Mr. Galsworthy was your father? I blinked my shock and sat back on my heels. So, not a homeless person. She was old Mr. Galsworthy's daughter after all. She just wasn't dead. But I saw the attic before I bought the house. You weren't in here then. I scratched my scalp, stumped by the latest turn of events. Yes, I was. She pointed at the small closet a few feet away. Through the crawl space back in the closet, there's a small passage. I scrambled to the closet and stuck my head in, as I had done before I bought the house. But I'd only taken a quick peek then. I squinted, and sure enough, there was a crawl space, and behind that I could see a passage that would be behind the wall. What do you do for food? I crawled back over to her, stopping when I heard her take a sharp breath. There are canned goods in the cellar. There were canned goods in the cellar. I had seen those when the real estate agent gave me a tour. A whole horde of them, many of them having been bought in the late 30s. They were stale and old, and I'd planned to toss them out. I leaned back against the same wall she was leaning on, but there was enough space between us to ensure that she wouldn't feel uncomfortable. I pinched the bridge of my nose and couldn't believe my luck. The house was gothic all right, but there were no ghosts in sight. Just a lunatic hidden away in the attic. The woman's mousy movements, the lights, the noise. That must have been what Mary Beth and the rest of the neighborhood noticed. Well, at least I didn't have to worry about her trying to possess my soul. I should have been worried, though. Since she was an actual person, she could kill me or set the house on fire. But my gut led me to believe that I could trust her. I could only hope that I could get her to trust me. Won't you tell me your name? I locked eyes with her and tried not to sound overeager in case I scared her off. Please? Samantha. Please. Don't make me leave. I'll be good. You'll never have to see me and you'll never know I'm here. I bit down on my tongue, 
I didn't want to lie to her, but she couldn't go on living as the mad woman in the attic. It wasn't right. She needed help and deserved to be happy and live a full life. But again, I had to find a way to make her trust me. Otherwise, she'd crumble. I've seen it before. Fellow troopers hanging on to their sanity by a thread. And when it snaps, you break down. Combat fatigue, they call it. No. For now, I had to play along. Samantha. I reached out to pat her hand, and thinking better of it, I drew back. This is more your home than it is mine. This house is more than big enough for the two of us. Don't be afraid, alright? It's going to be okay. Her dark eyes flittered over me, and then she met my gaze. I felt a stirring inside of me, like we were connected somehow. Her soul understood mine. Thank you. Samantha continued to nibble on her cookies. The next morning, I brought Samantha up some breakfast and let her know that I'd be outside all morning, so she'd have full run of the house and no one would bother her. That way, if she wanted to freshen up or whatever, she could and she wouldn't have to worry about bumping into me. She nodded but made no reply on what she planned to do. I came back inside around noon and hurried to the bathroom to scrub my hands clean. Even with the bristle scrub brush, there was dirt on my hands that would never come off. I then headed to the kitchen to make a sandwich and bumped straight into Samantha as she was leaving. No longer huddled in a corner and standing ramrod straight, the top of her head reached my chin. Her dark hair fell in waves past her shoulders, and her wide open face bore an array of emotions in one expression. Samantha brought her arms up to shield herself from the blows that she was anticipating. When I stepped aside, she scrambled past and I barely heard her dainty feet as she fled back to her prison. My gaze fell on the kitchen table, where bread, cold meats, cheese, and a bowl of apples had been laid out for my meal. In her own backwards way, Samantha was trying to be friendly. Wait. I swung around and followed, but stopped myself at the bottom of the stairs. If Samantha was frightened of meeting me face to face, she'd be terrified if I chased after her. Grasping the newel post, I tightened my fingers around the rim. I know you're not ready, but maybe sometime you can join me for a meal. Or tea. I heard her footfall slow, and holding my breath, I felt a wave of satisfaction that she was listening to me. It can get lonesome in this big old house. I returned to the kitchen took a seat and made my sandwich, and was midway through with it when Samantha hovered in the doorway. I nodded to her, trying my best to conceal how happy she made me. I thought that I could try and see what happens. Samantha wrapped her arms around her willowy waist. She noted my confused expression and added, If I can be calm enough to be down here for any length of time, 
Samantha sat down at the opposite end of the table and folded her hands, anxiously watching my every movement. I stole several glimpses at her, only then realizing how beautiful she was. Her brown, almost black hair and greenish eyes only appeared more dramatic against her pale, translucent skin. The sun had not touched her in God knows how long. The dress she wore seemed old-fashioned, and it hung on her bony frame. Though I'd heard about recluses, I had never met one, and didn't know really what to talk about. Since Samantha had been hiding away from the world for a while now, and since there was no radio in the house, I had to assume that she knew nothing about the war, or that Hitler killed himself, or that President Roosevelt had died. She hadn't seen any movies or read any new books. I started on my apple, taking a huge bite out of it, chewed and swallowed. You never leave the attic for long? Or the house at all? I used to, when I was younger. For school and church and to see friends. What happened? That she had once been normal led me to hope that she could be normal again once she got the help she needed. Samantha glanced down at her hands. She had begun to unconsciously wring them. I'm not sure. Have you ever heard how, in the Bible, when Nebuchadnezzar went mad and wild for seven years? She scooted forward in her chair, and fidgeting, she leaned back once more. Well, that's the best way I can describe my madness. It'll go away and come back again. There's no predicting it, when or how it will strike, but it always returns. She shook her head mournfully. The first time it happened, Daddy decided that I needed to go to a sanitarium to rest and to heal. But that's not what happened. I laid my apple down, my hunger dwindling. I sensed that whatever she was about to tell me, I wouldn't like it. My memory is foggy. Samantha automatically pressed her fingertips to her temples and winced. The doctors did three electric shock sessions on me before Daddy found out. He came to rescue me and brought me home. Her eyes welled with tears at the mention of her father, and she got a faraway look on her face. Daddy said that it'd be best if I stay in the house from now on and go to the attic if my madness got out of control, or if someone came over. The way she spoke about her father, old Mr. Galsworthy, scared the shit out of me. Their relationship hadn't been natural, that much I could tell. His control over her, her obsessive reliance on him. It wasn't surprising that Samantha ended up in a sanitarium at one point. Old Mr. Galsworthy sounded like a perfectly good waste of skin, and Samantha was better off now that he was dead. Though I had only had three encounters with her, Samantha didn't seem crazy to me. People think you died, Samantha. I was careful not to attack her father in any way. It wouldn't help to upset her. But I could plant those seeds of doubt, and eventually Samantha would come to the realization that she deserved better, 
That was Daddy's idea. Samantha's mouth stretched wide, and though I couldn't be sure, I figured out that that was her version of a smile. He said someone might come and take me away, so he told everyone that I died. I returned her smile, half-heartedly though, and nudged a fresh apple across the table to her. This was going to take longer than I had originally thought. In Samantha's eyes, her daddy could do no wrong. An attack on him would be an attack on her. I would have to work harder to win her trust, or risk crushing her spirit to dust. The days that followed mimicked our first day together. I'd bring up breakfast to Samantha and let her know I'd be out. Whenever I returned, she'd be freshened up and have a meal waiting for me. It was a nice few weeks there. We were like newlyweds, living side by side and getting to know one another. The time had come when I needed to find a job. After I'd been discharged, I'd given myself a couple of months to relax and heal from my wartime experiences. Compared to most guys, I was doing okay. The occasional nightmare and flashback set me on edge, but at least I didn't have combat fatigue. That was hell. Anyway, I got on at a local company as a steel worker and spent most of my time there. To make up for my absence, I decided to do something nice for Samantha. She had made many strides in the past few weeks, emerging from her upstairs prison, on her own without any coaxing from me. On a laborer's salary, I didn't make a fortune, but I had saved something from my paratrooping days that would come in handy. Many of the paratroopers hung onto the reserve chutes because they were made of white silk, and they gave them to their sweethearts to be made into wedding dresses. I had gotten a Dear John letter from my girlfriend long before we jumped into France, and I ended up saving my chute in case I fell on hard times and needed to sell it. I brought it to a seamstress and had a fancy dress made up. The lady had finished in a couple of weeks and I picked it up as soon as I could, implying it was for my girl. Once I was home, I climbed out of my truck and cradled the fine dress in my arms, feeling awkward with something so dainty draped over my muscular forearms. I froze when I heard a high-pitched girlish squeal. Kicking the door closed with my steel-toe booted foot, I forced my mouth in a grin. Oh, what a nice dress! Mary Beth skidded to a stop next to me, her mouth in the shape of a large O. The girl looked more herself, her hair tightly braided and wearing a t-shirt and bibbed overalls. Without that makeup caked on her face, she had a constellation of freckles that dusted her cheeks and nose. Who's it for? A friend. Really? Mary Beth's hand snaked up to the dress and she plucked the hem of it, rubbing the silk between her index finger and thumb. And I prayed to God that she wasn't too grubby, otherwise she'd soil the dress. Was it the friend who came over the other day? I heard you two talking. Are you trying to make me jealous? I gulped, hoping the glug sound I made wasn't too loud. You'll always be my best girl. 
Mary Beth grinned, showing off her dimples in her cheeks and chin. She seemed pacified for now. The thought occurred to me that since Mary Beth and her folks had been neighbors of the Galsworthies, that she could shed some light on their situation. Yeah, much of what she heard was gossip, but I figured I could read between the lines of it all. Whatever I learned, it would eventually help Samantha. Mary Beth, what else can you tell me about Mr. Galsworthy's daughter? Not much. I was just a kid when Mr. Galsworthy killed her. Mary Beth twisted her mouth in contemplation and raised a finger when she remembered something. There was always talk about her, that she was a loony. But my daddy said that it was Mr. Galsworthy who was really crazy. That he was controlling and obsessed with her. And that he killed her because she tried to break free. Mary Beth's version confirmed my own suspicions. The girl wasn't old enough to understand what really went on behind closed doors. She was more interested in the lurid side of things. But that the neighbors viewed Mr. Galsworthy as a pariah, likely for what he did to his daughter and how he treated her, spoke volumes to me. But I was on the right track, and with a little more work, I'd be able to help Samantha free herself from the prison her father put her in. She could be rehabilitated. How am I going to let her go, though? Sure, she was troubled and broken, but aren't we all at some point? That doesn't make her less deserving to be loved. I have to love her enough to let her go. That's what love is. Putting someone else's happiness above your own. Love. I hadn't realized it, but somewhere along the way, I had fallen in love with Samantha Galsworthy. Did you ever see the daughter? I ran my tongue over my chapped lips, noting how the winds from the north had dried out my skin. I considered growing a beard to protect my face from freezing. Sort of. In the windows. Mary Beth craned her neck back and nodded toward a window on the second story. Oh, one time, she was in the backyard, and when she saw me, she ran back inside. At least, I think it was her. Her face lit up, and she sucked in an ecstatic gasp. (gasps) James, has Samantha Galsworthy been haunting you? I chortled and shook my head. No, I just think the story's interesting is all. Mary Beth frowned, but looked unconvinced. Not that I could blame her. I had stirred up her fascination by asking questions. I wished her to have a good evening and headed inside, reminding myself not to egg her on again. It would only work the poor girl up. On entering the house, I sniffed the air and followed that mouth-watering aroma of fried chicken and mashed potatoes. I found Samantha in the kitchen preparing supper. Samantha spun around on her delicate heel and greeted me with a demure smile. Good evening. Her eyes darted to the dress splayed across my arms. What is that? I carried it over to her, my head bobbing bashfully. Do you like it? I had to guess your measurements. God help me, I had memorized every inch of her. Enough to provide a perfect description to the seamstress. 
I can have it redone. No. It's lovely. Samantha tilted her head and gazed longingly at the dress. She wiped her hands on her apron and swiped a finger at the sleeve. But why? Silk must have cost you a fortune. Army Airborne issued. It came from my reserve chute. I was a paratrooper during the war. Then it dawned on me that I hadn't explained why I was giving her such a gift. We're friends. Friends can give each other presents. Two dots stood out on her pale cheekbones, and my fears of her rejection were banished when she held open her arms to receive it. After I handed it over, Samantha measured the dress up to her body. I'll be right back. She dashed out of the room. While she was upstairs, I set the table and laid the chicken and potatoes out. Samantha wasn't gone five minutes before she pitter-pattered back down to the kitchen. She waited in the doorway and twirled around, holding her skirt out of the way to not get tangled in it. It's so soft and creamy. Samantha swished the skirt once more, beaming brighter than an angel. Thank you, James. I don't think I had something so nice before. I was slack-jawed by her radiant beauty. She was like one of those old china dolls, fine and graceful. The dress fit her perfectly. Every tuck and dip set off the curves of her figure. My mouth had gone dry, so I was only able to rasp out. You deserve nice things, Samantha. I'd give her the world if I could. Samantha approached me, and rising up on tiptoe, she pecked my cheek sending what felt like a shock through me. We had our meal and washed up the dishes together. Afterwards, she made a pot of tea and we took it out to the back porch to watch the sunset over the tops of the changing trees. Samantha cuddled next to me on the porch swing, resting her head on my shoulder, which warded off the bite in the air. In between cups of tea, I ended up telling Samantha about my war experiences. Nothing too personal, but that I had seen one of those concentration camps. Samantha leaned her head back to gaze up at me. I can't imagine how anyone survived such horrors. Or how you survived the war. Staring into her childlike eyes, I knew it was too soon to broach the subject, but I couldn't stop myself. I was under her spell, and there was no freeing me. You kind of reminded me of the prisoners when I first saw you. Haunted and skittish. I stroked her cheek and lowered my mouth to hers, sighing softly as her lips yielded beneath mine. Her hand cupped the back of my head to encourage me further. When we parted, I shook my head sadly, hating to ruin the moment. But Samantha's well-being was more important than my feelings. Samantha, what your father did to you, committing you and banishing you upstairs, that was wrong. Samantha shrank back like a wounded animal and moved to the other side of the swing. 
Daddy did the best he could. But that didn't make it right. I glanced down. Her hand lay between us. I picked it up and kissed her knuckles. You deserve to be free and be happy and live the life you were always meant to lead. Samantha sniffed loudly and when I looked up, I was relieved to see her nodding. She agreed with me. It would be hard, but we'd get her some help and then we could be together forever. There was a smart little rap on the pink siding of the house. Mary Beth rounded the corner. Samantha shot to her feet and bolted indoors. But it was too late. Mary Beth had seen the infamous Samantha Galsworthy, the ghost that had been haunting the Pink Palace. Well, at least those rumors of Samantha's murder will finally die. Mary Beth was once more in the dress that didn't fit her, and her little face was slathered in cakey makeup. Good lord, James. It ain't Christian to entertain strange women in the evenings. She put one hand on her hip and shook a finger at me, tisking her tongue. I stood, counting to ten. She's just a kid. I can't be mad at a kid. But I was frustrated. Mary Beth didn't mean to, but she interrupted a private and important moment. This sort of thing couldn't go on. Not anymore. Mary Beth, what are you doing here? It's late. I took several deep breaths, but felt my blood pressure spike when she blew a kiss at me. Look, I've tried to be patient. You're a nice kid, but I'm not interested in you. Okay? You need to find someone your own age. Tears welled up in her eyes was something I didn't know how to deal with. Damn it. I made a little girl cry. I raked my fingers through my hair. But I love you. I really do. She hurled herself at me and flung her arms around my neck. Please, won't you love me back? I unclasped her hands and pushed her back gently as I could. No. I'm sorry. I love someone else. The back door creaked and pride swelled in my chest as Samantha slowly emerged from the house, braving the outside on her own. Samantha took her place beside me and laced her fingers through mine. It's me. James loves me. You need to leave him alone, Mary Beth. Several seconds lapsed before I realized that Samantha knew Mary Beth's name. Yet, I had never once talked to her about the girl. Mary Beth had told me she had seen Samantha once, but never mentioned being properly introduced. Wait, you know her? Samantha slid her hand out of mine and crossed her arms over her abdomen. Mary Beth balled her fists. Of course we know each other. We're sisters. Samantha, Samantha, Samantha. It's always Samantha. Did she tell you that she killed me? Pushed me out of the window of the attic because her boyfriend liked me better than her. Oh, 
god. Mary Beth is the ghost. I staggered backwards and slumped against a wall of the house, weak and listless. Samantha covered her ears and sobbed. No! It was an accident! I swear, I didn't mean to! What about Mother? Mary Beth picked up one of the teacups and threw it against the wood porch. It shattered into pieces. Putting arsenic in her tea because she wouldn't take you to the picture show. Was that an accident? Or the time you drowned our cousin at the old swimming hole? I clutched my throat, gagging. But that was just a reflex. If Samantha had poisoned me with arsenic, it would have killed me earlier. Still, I clawed at my throat, and then my shirt, unable to breathe. One sister is a ghost. The other is a murderer. Daddy always liked you best. Mary Beth grabbed the shoulder of Samantha's dress, and giving it a hard yank, she tore the seam. You got the pretty name and the pretty clothes. You got to decide what color this house was. The favorite. His princess. That's why he covered up your murders and shipped you off to the loony bin. And then when poor Samantha was sad, he brought her home. She stomped her foot, shrieking like a struck child. It's not fair! I never get to be the favorite! Samantha was trembling from head to toe. She lowered herself to the floor and brought up her arms to defend herself from her dead sister. I snapped awake from my trance and pushed myself between them. No matter what Samantha might have done, she didn't deserve to be abused. Not now. She had already been in a prison of her own making. I decided that she shouldn't have to pay twice for what she had done. Besides, who was I to judge? In the war, I had killed too. Nothing had changed. Samantha was still the same woman that I loved. Samantha, take my hand. We have to get out of here. I grabbed her shoulder and gave her a sharp shake, hoping to wake her up too. But Mary Beth's manic presence seemed to have control over Samantha. Come on, Samantha. Please! I'm scared. Her back curved, and I could see that she was visibly retreating into the position she was in when I first found her. I scooped Samantha up and carried her out of the yard. Mary Beth followed, screeching after us, but stopped once she reached the edge of the property. I hadn't noticed it before, but every time I'd seen her, it had been on the Pink Palace's property. She was bound there for all eternity. Samantha had fallen silent and became limp in my arms. Having been ripped away from her sanctuary at the Pink Palace, she couldn't cope. Her unblinking eyes focused on nothing, and her head lolled about with each step that I took. I had to get her to a doctor and quick before she parted with her proper mind. I scanned the empty street. No one with their salt was out. The town seemed to have gone to bed as soon as the night had fallen. There was no movement, 
Not the wind, not even a squirrel or a bird. Only a ghostly yellowed moon hanging low, and a few street lamps lit my path. I clambered up one block and down the other, until I made it to Main Street. The lone police officer was walking his beat, twirling a small club at his hip. The police officer gave a little jump when I rushed up to him. Please, help her! The muscles in my arms jerked as I held Samantha up for him to see. She was light as a feather, but my arms were beginning to fall asleep from cradling her in that position for so long. I forced her out of her home, and she's having a nervous breakdown. What? His eyes lowered to Samantha, and he frowned. Her name is Samantha Galsworthy. She's a reckless who lives at the Pink Palace. We have to get her to a hospital, please! The police officer didn't react the way I expected him to. This was a life-and-death situation, and he seemed nonplussed at the fact that I was toting around a catatonic woman. Right away, I understood why his shift was at night. He was good for nothing and didn't take his responsibility to help and protect the town seriously. Plump, and the kind that ambled, he was probably someone's relative. Is this some kind of joke? The police officer snorted loudly and shook his large round head. Samantha Galsworthy has been dead for years. I went to her funeral. I gritted my teeth, unable to wrap my mind around that he could be so dense. But did you see the body? Was the casket closed? Mr. Galsworthy wanted everyone to think Samantha was dead. That's why he jumped off the bridge. He felt guilty. Once more, I held out Samantha's listless body to him as proof. Even if he didn't believe me that she was Samantha, I would have thought that he would have cared about the state the woman was in. But he didn't give her so much as a second glance. This is Samantha Galsworthy. Look at her! Mister, you're holding a dress. I looked down, and my heart seized up in my chest. Samantha wasn't there. All that remained was an empty, wrinkled dress. Samantha must have been bound to the property, too. Oh, God! I slumped to the ground, sobbing hysterically into the silk bodice. Mary Beth was going to get Samantha. see why I have to go back to the Pink Palace? To Samantha? I know she's there, waiting for me. She needs me. I can feel her presence. I can hear her voice. She's calling to me. So, stop stuffing me with pills and talking my ear off. You say I still suffer from combat fatigue, or that at the most, it was a ghost. It doesn't matter to me if Samantha Galsworthy was a ghost, or a recluse, or even a murderer. I still love her. Please. It's been 60 years. Please believe me. Let me go.
In our final tale, we meet a man who's about to move out. It's his final Halloween on Russell Street, and he's excited for the merriment. He's getting his decorations just right, preparing his candy bowl. But in this tale, shared with us by author Lucius R.T. Green, a strange warning throws a wrench into the seasonal fun. A warning that shouldn't be relevant, but somehow is. I join David Alt, Kristen DiMercurio, Mike Delgadio, and Jeff Clement in performing this tale. So heed the words of the strange arbiter. Don't dismiss them out of hand. You might be surprised how quickly things can get empty. Trying to remember when it first felt wrong. I think it was this morning, Halloween morning. I was in line at my local Rite Aid with a shopping cart full of candy and bottles of fog juice. I'd borrowed Alice's fog machine this year for my setup, and I didn't want to risk running out of atmosphere halfway through the night. The candy was for the kids, and not my kids, the kids in the neighborhood. There were always plenty of candy takers coming up and down Russell Street. Uh, were. I hadn't noticed it coming in, so I wasn't prepared for what happened as I stepped out of the shop, plastic bags under each arm. It was waiting for me. To warn me. I should have listened, but how could I have known it would have been a ridiculous assumption? Even now, I, I can't remember exactly what it looked like. I remember seeing it and talking to it, but when I try to picture any distinct features, my brain just skips off it. It's like remembering something I only saw in my peripheral vision. It was tall and uh, human-shaped. I think it was female, but I'm not sure anymore. The only detail I remember was knotted wild hair almost completely obscuring its face. For some reason, I can't fathom the rest. I first noticed it when I stepped out of the store, sliding double doors parting to let me out. It was standing by a stack of pumpkins, chewing its fingernails. I didn't pay it any mind. Then it was on me. It should have taken more than two strides to close the distance between us, but that's what it felt like. In an instant, this thing had its claws on my collar and was hissing into my ear. Answer the door, if you live on an empty street. And then it was gone, as if it had never been there. The warning wouldn't really register to me for another hour. It was a busy day and I had a lot of preparing to do. By the time I got back to my home at the corner of Russell and Fulton Street, I'd almost completely forgotten my encounter outside the Rite Aid. I gave a quiet little whoop of joy when I saw a cardboard box outside my door. My yearly supply of Dutch black licorice had arrived just in time for the holiday. I've always loved black licorice. So difficult to get over here. As far as childhood quirks go, it's not one of the stranger ones I've ever heard of. Not nearly as strange as my friends who thought tarantulas were cute, 
or that Brussels sprouts were some succulent delicacy the rest of us were just too uncultured to appreciate. But that's how I was with black licorice, while other kids would dive in for, oh, any of the British sweets that you would have. I'd be sitting in the corner with a box of Bassett's licorice all sorts. And then I came over here, and I was introduced to Good and Plenty's, and that just took it even further. Yeah, I know, I was an odd kid, and as I grew older, I began to suspect that I liked the licorice because it reminded me of me. After all, we're both sour, dark, and an acquired taste if you aren't a Dutchman. <laughs> yeah. Francis, my neighbour, was out on his porch inspecting a strand of lights. Since before we moved here, him and his wife Agatha loved dressing their house up like a, an old-timey circus, complete with a massive red tent pitched over their front lawn for the kids to go through to get to the treats at the end. But Francis looked far more concerned than usual. I asked him what was wrong. I don't understand it. It was working fine minutes ago. He showed me the strand, and I finally noticed... The bulbs were flickering up and down the entire line in an erratic pattern. Have you checked the power source? It's solid as a rock. The only thing I can figure is one of the kids playing with the dimmer to mess with me. But they're all at school now. I shrugged and wished him the best of luck with figuring out his electrical problem. I should have tried harder. I should have actually listened. My setup was significantly less elaborate than all my neighbours going down Russell Street. I didn't feel inadequate because of it, though. I've always believed in the merits of minimalism. My house didn't need to be the main course, just a good hors d'oeuvre. Anyway, I was proud of my setup. I'd tested the fog machine out the night before. It produced a nice layer of fog over the footpath, transforming my welcoming front lawn into a bog by night. A few ghost lights dotted along the path towards the side of the house completed the picture and ideally would help guide children to my off-centre front door. This would be my last Halloween on Russell Street. At the time, I thought it would be because of my housing situation. My longtime boyfriend René and I had started renting this house three years ago, but since we split up in mid-March, it was looking far less likely I'd be able to afford the modest suburban house on a substitute teacher's salary. And I'm not the sort of lunatic who asks their rebound fling to move in right away for financial reasons. But I wanted one more Halloween night on Russell Street. And I guess in the end, I got more than I bargained for. I saw it again in the mid-afternoon. The overcast sky was an ashy grey over the thing's head. The thing that tried to warn me. Don't answer the door. It was turning around the opposite corner of Russell and Fulton. Its wild locks vanished from view a split second after I noticed them. I, I think that's what I saw. The sight was so fleeting, it could have been anything. This brief sight brought its words back to me like bile rising in the back of my throat. If you live on an empty street... I shook it off. I didn't have any reason to worry. Russell was the busiest street in Berkeley on Halloween night. Every house, including my own, welcomed trick-or-treaters until the wee hours of the morning. Even on its quietest moments, it could never be mistaken for an empty street. I took a brief walk through my Halloween setup. 
First, my outer fence, strategically propped open with a skeletal hand rising from the dirt. Second, the path through my front lawn, covered in fog, but guided by ghost lights to the side of my house, where finally they would have to walk across my porch, half hedge maze, half normal walkway, to my door, where a pot of candy would be sitting on an armchair waiting for them. On my door, I stuck a large eyeball with I'm watching you scrawled underneath it in crude red lettering. Honestly, I didn't care how much candy children took. I always got more than enough and took care to refill the bowl every few hours or so. It wasn't anywhere near as elaborate as the rest of the block. Karen and Stephanie's place was decked out like a full pirate ship and their friends were all going to come over dressed as crew. But in its own simple way, it was presentable. It was ready. That was when René called. When I saw his name on the caller ID, my stomach seized up a little bit and I hated myself for that reflex. It's been seven months, why does he still do that to you? When I answered the phone, I was greeted by heavy breathing on the other end. I glared at the phone for a moment before I responded. Really, René? That's the best you could do? (laughs) Happy Halloween to you too. Doing anything special? Why do you care? Because I may stop by. See how Russell Street is this year. Oh, don't tease me like that, Renee. I tried to force a wry smirk into my voice. I was doing my best to play along, but Renee really had no idea how uncomfortable his flirting made me this soon after our breakup. I think he assumed I'd moved on to the blissfully single stage as fast as he had. Did you get another shipment of that awful licorice this year? You know I did. Some things will never change. A long pause followed. I knew these kinds of pauses, and I knew that if I wasn't careful, the chasm would open up so wide, all my feelings would fall through it and become part of the conversation. Fortunately, it only opened wide enough for what René had been meaning to say. How much longer are you going to hold onto the house? I'm meeting with the estate agent next week. Can I guess why you wanted to stay through October? No, you can't. I could practically hear his smirk over the phone. (laughs) Have a good Halloween. I'll be thinking of you. And then he hung up, leaving me with a host of questions I'm glad I didn't get the chance to ask. Why is he thinking of me? Was he just joking about paying me a visit? Did he leave something at the house he wants to pick up? Why the phone call and not text? I groaned and tried to shake the thought off by collapsing onto my couch. It didn't work. I shook my head and rose to a sitting position. I checked the clock. It was 4pm. Almost time for the younger trick-or-treaters to start making their rounds. I'd see a few students of mine show up at my door pretty soon. Outside, the sky was still a dull grey, but it was noticeably darker than when I last checked now the colour of soot more than the colour of ash. I hadn't turned my lights on yet. I'm not sure whether it was because I was raised by rigorous environmentalists or because I just liked the look of natural light, but I always waited until the absolute last minute in the evening to flick the switch. The shadows were starting to deepen inside my living room. For a moment I thought I saw a twist of knotted hair outside one window. No, I'm not doing this. Get out of my head. 
Shut up, shut up, shut up. If you... I could feel its claws around my neck again, pleading at me in its unearthly voice. Grateful for the distraction, I went to answer the door. It was a trio of eight-year-old boys dressed as Optimus Prime, Captain America and Satan, respectively. True to his role, Satan had already stuffed a handful of sweets in his bag before I opened the door. So I gave him the black licorice, while I gave Optimus and Captain America M&Ms. The evening continued like this for a while... Occasionally, I would go outside to top up the fog machine or refill the candy bowl. But other than that, I remained inside, sat on my couch behind a book, enjoying listening to the children making their way to and from my porch. I had a speaker set up behind a rock in my front lawn to occasionally play the sound of a distant wolf howl or a haunting moan, which I cued every 15 minutes or so. I didn't want to overdo it, but I enjoyed what it added to the ambiance. And then, when darkness fell... Everything was quiet. I assumed I'd fallen asleep for a brief moment because I didn't remember when the noise stopped. I just remember it was getting really quiet. I clicked the speaker on and I heard the wolf howl, but no children. No families. It was only 8pm. We should have been in the thick of the Halloween madness, and yet nothing. I don't remember how long I waited, how long I tried to shut it out, but eventually I just got so curious I had to go over to the window to check. Before I reached the window, the door called to me. I should have checked the window, I should have looked outside, but that sudden breaking of the silence was too compelling for me to resist. In two strides, I was at the door. A moment later, I had the door unlocked, and a moment after that, I was pulling it open... to nothing. No trick-or-treaters, no late-night postman, not even the wild-haired thing. My porch was empty, candy skulls grinning up at me from the pot of treats sitting on the rocking chair. I peered around the corner. I couldn't see the street from this side of my house, but... The path I had carefully laid out for young trick-or-treaters was empty. I took a few steps out and walked my own haunted house in reverse. I crossed the half-hedge maze, stepped through the empty bog, and walked out through the ajar gate. I struggled to comprehend what I saw then. Russell Street was completely empty. The houses all the way down had their lights and decorations blazing, but I could not see a single soul. I ran over to Francis's haunted circus tent. The lights were on and the music blared from within. I ducked inside. Immediately I was overwhelmed with fog. I mentally cursed Francis for going a bit overboard with the fog machine and stepped out as quickly as I could. When I was back on the street, I shouted his name. I shouted Agatha's name. I called for every neighbour I knew and was met with nothing but resounding silence. I was out of breath. I didn't notice I'd been walking, but here I was, halfway up the street outside Karen and Stephanie's place. Their Tudor house was emblazoned with skull and crossbones flags and tattered sails. The outer fence had been replaced with large, curved wooden planks, giving the feel that the whole yard was the deck of a mighty galleon. And yet... On either side of their footpath, where Karen and Stephanie and their crew would gather to hurl piratey jabs at their guests, 
there was empty grass. The only way I could tell anyone had ever been there were the heavy-booted footprints all over the lawn. Fresh boot prints, like they were only there moments ago. A harsh wooden clack caught my attention as the door to their house slammed shut. Someone had just walked through it. They must have, shutting it behind them. I ran up to the door and pressed their doorbell. The ring was impossible to miss, even underneath all the pirate shanties. The door clicked and began to swing open. I breathed a sigh of relief that caught in my throat as the door hung ajar. The house was empty. The door had, as far as I could tell, swung open on its own. I don't know how long it stayed open, but it slammed shut with the same intensity, jarring me back to reality. What was happening? I walked back through all the dead decorations, looking up and down the street for any signs of life or anyone who could help me. When I reached the street, I saw the thing. It didn't look the same as when I saw it outside Rite Aid or on my street corner or at my window. The twisted, rancid locks of hair were the same, but as a whole, it felt more at home now. Like I was seeing it for the first time in this new element. I can remember what it looked like now. It stood in the centre of the street, just outside the pool of a nearby streetlight. Strands of darkness seemed to pull from the air around it and form into a rumpled suit about its neck and shoulders. Its nails were long, past the point where nails become claws and back to being nails again. But what I couldn't take my eyes off were its legs. They were sharp and double-jointed, like a goat's legs, but did not have a hair on them. Instead, they had a carapace, like a beetle or a lobster, glistening inky black in the streetlight. It saw me, and it grinned. I didn't see it grin, but I felt the grin under my skin. I couldn't see its face, but somehow I knew that whatever was underneath that tangle of hair was looking at me with a gleeful and predatory expression. I just stood there, frozen to the spot. And then I heard a scream from down the street. I think it caught the creature off guard as much as it did me, for its head jerked around with a sort of suddenness you only see in insects or arachnids, swinging like clockwork to face the new noise. And just like that it was gone, clawing down the street with the speed of a racing dog. I didn't know I'd been holding my breath until the thing was out of sight. The air shot out of my lungs so fast I nearly collapsed. Don't answer the door if you live on an empty street. Had it really been trying to warn me? Taunt me? Bait me? I didn't have time to answer. What I needed was to problem solve. Reason said I should be able to leave this place the way I came in, so I ran back to my house with as much speed as I could muster, keeping one eye over my shoulder for the creature. It didn't take me long to get back. I was through my door before I could think, and I slammed it shut behind me. I waited. How long should this take? Was it an instantaneous process or a gradual one? I listened, listened for the sound to come back, for children's laughter, for anything. I didn't hear anything. I opened the door. And it was standing right in front of me. 
I stumbled backward so fast I fell onto my back. The thing stepped in after me, legs clicking as it moved. I saw a beady black eye shimmering from within the tangled greying hair. It regarded me from above, cocking its head to one side. This isn't an empty street. This isn't an empty street. I thought those words to myself over and over as if the thought would keep the creature at bay. It circled me, and as it passed each light fixture, the illumination flickered and died, extinguished by the creature's ratty coat. I believe it would have killed me then, but my phone rang. I normally had the bloody thing set to vibrate, but I must have flipped the switch by mistake because the silence was broken by the sudden blare of the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> the creature didn't react to it like a sudden undiscovered weakness. In fact, if it heard the song, I couldn't tell. It just froze. Standing over me, one clawed hand raised by its head, the other poised by its hip in a striking motion. I answered the phone without even checking caller ID. It was René, and by the sound of it, he was very drunk. Martin, how's, how's Eve going? René, oh thank God, listen, I... Thank God. This isn't a holy day, man. Feel free to let your pagan flag fly. <laughs> I was too scared to be annoyed. I just needed to keep him talking. René, do you hear me? I hear you. Talk to me. What's what's going on? Uh, what are you calling about? I don't know what my plan was. I just wanted to keep Rene talking while I figured something out. Maybe I'd keep him talking until the morning and this thing in my living room would go back to being a homeless individual shouting madness outside pharmacies. I finished the Great Pumpkin and I didn't have anyone to talk to. What? You? Uh, come on, don't lie to me like that. You're, you're a social animal. That can't have changed in six months. Uh, being a social animal is exhausting, man. You know, I wish I could be antisocial sometimes. Just shut people out and not have to worry about what other people think of me or whatever. But I'm just not built that way, you know? Trust me, being a people person has its perks. Grass is always greener and all that. By now, the creature was shrinking. I detected no movement from it, but I think it was receding towards the still open door as I talked. The lamps around it started to sputter back to life. I cautiously started to rise to my feet. If you say so. <laughs> hey, did you get to watch any classics this year? The creature turned to face me in that same jerky speed, and I nearly dropped the phone. It wasn't moving to attack me, just to keep me in view. Not really. Uh, too focused with looking for a new place. Tonight was my reading night. Oh, yes. The classic Morton Night of Solitude. <laughs> yeah, that's most nights. I took a step forward. The creature receded, matching my step. I took another step. It shrunk back more. I wasn't winning, but I was gaining ground. Maybe if I got it out the door... So, are you gonna let me in, or what? Wait, what? My eyes must have bulged to the size of dinner plates. The creature started to move again. No, not move. Twitch. Its upper body began to convulse and spasm, creating the same clicking and crunching sound it made when it walked. It was so unnatural, I felt like I was going to be sick. <laughs> right outside your door. 
Don't you want to have a drink with me for old time's sake? I didn't hear you. I rang the doorbell. It's broken. Do you want me to knock? I tried to warn him. Oh God, I tried to warn him. He was drunk, I wasn't fast enough, he wasn't cautious enough. Oh, I've given myself all the excuses in the world and none of them seem convincing. Don't knock! But then the call ended and the door to my house swung shut, leaving me alone in my living room with my new neighbor. I gave the most pleading look I could to the black eye, but all it gave me was a single raised finger, perhaps intended as a quieting gesture, but with the jerky way the thing moved, it came off more as a stern warning. If it's possible for something to crawl on two legs, it did it. It crawled to the door and opened it. I don't think René even saw the thing when the door opened. His grin widened and he held up a bottle of margarita mix in his left hand and a VHS tape of The Shining in the other. It was the warmest smile I'd seen from anyone in a long time. I've spent a lot of the last few hours wondering why he wanted to come over. Was it to make amends, get back together, or just the general pull of nostalgia? The thing was on top of him in under three seconds. It didn't pounce so much as envelop him. The shadows that clung to its coat seized him on all sides and held them torso to torso as it tore into his flesh with teeth and talons. I broke for the kitchen and seized as many items as I could find. A steak knife, pen, paper, and for some reason a bag of black licorice. Comfort food has a strong pull on us all, I suppose. I've always been a horrible compromiser. I don't think I even really chose between fight or flight, so I found myself on the porch by this creature consuming my ex-boyfriend with a knife in my hand and not a courageous bone in my body. But I slashed at it anyway. <laughs> I might as well have been cutting a cloud. The knife sank in, and when I pulled it back, it was covered in a thick black substance that smelled like a mixture of molasses and crude oil. I tried to stab again and almost lost the knife. It didn't even acknowledge me. Eventually, I broke and ran. I'm not proud of it. There's not a whole lot I can be proud of in this tale, but I knew the second it was finished with René, it would turn on me. I didn't want to give up hope just yet. There was one thing I could accomplish before I succumbed to this creature. I needed to write my story down. If I never got out of here, I knew my writing might not a moment too soon that I decided to run because the creature was hard on my heels as soon as I crossed my gate. So instead of running straight down Russell Street, I turned and ducked into Francis's circus tent and into the maze of funhouse mirrors. Thank God he overdid it with the smoke machine, otherwise I wouldn't be alive to tell this tale. I'd helped Francis set the tent up this year, so I knew my way around this maze. The creature, supernatural though it is, was not so lucky. I don't know how much of its senses are guided by sight, but the fog and the mirrors seem to confuse and enrage it to no end. At least that's what I could tell from the horrible screaming that came from that tent after I had emerged. This is the last I'll be able to write in this entry. The creature has left the tent, and I have successfully evaded it for the last eight hours. I'm losing track of time, to be honest. 
It should be dawn by now, but I don't see any sight of the sun. I fear I'll be trapped on this Halloween night until it catches me, or until I die of exhaustion or dehydration. So far the licorice is keeping me alive, so I'm thankful for that at least. I'm scribbling this note in the attic of Mr. Jensen, a neighbour of mine who always has been friendly to me. The man is a journalist, so I hope he finds this note and doesn't discard it with the rest of his trash. He lives on the corner of Russell and Shattuck, so he's safe. Shattuck is a much busier street than Fulton. Fulton. The street that doomed me. I can hear it coming closer. I'll I'll need to move quick to keep distance between us. I'll close the note with the same warning the creature itself gave me. Do not answer the door if you live on an empty street. Morning, Mr. Jensen. Have a nice Halloween. You're up disgustingly early. Got work to do, neighbor. Gotta start packing up the tent. Already? I always assumed there was a grace period with decorations. Usually there is, but this one's a bit of a hazard now. Some kids tore up the inside of the circus tent and busted up all the funhouse mirrors last night. Seemed unsafe to leave it up too long, you know, broken glass and all. Did anyone get hurt? Eh, they're all fine. I only just noticed the damage this morning. If a kid got cut up in my maze, I would have gotten a dozen angry phone calls by now. And people say demons are the scariest part of this holiday. Say, Francis, have you heard from Morton Williams at all? The, The guy who lives on the corner? I just saw him yesterday, but I'm pretty sure he's moved out already. His house was dark all night. Why? I found it. <sighs> Never mind. It's probably nothing. Hey, if you need a hand taking down your, um, <laughs> circus, just ask. Hey, Drew, did you get the image I emailed you? Yeah, it was on my desk. No, I didn't write it myself. I'm a journalist, not a Pulp Fiction guy. Give me a break. Yeah, it could be a practical joke. I've got a strange feeling about it, though. See, I swung by Mr. Williams' house. Mostly empty, from what I can tell. Man had already moved out. But for some reason, he left his Halloween decorations behind. I just don't know what to make of that. joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. 
Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.